you're a human being. Yeah, but I'm like constantly eating. I feel like whenever I talk to another human, there's food in my mouth. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't noticed, I guess. I just, I have a passion for talking with my mouth full. Yeah, that's normal for you. And then choking on it. Great. And then choking on my spit. Fine. Hi, Sage. How are you today? Are you going to be a good boy? Are you going to step on mommy's computer and break everything? <laughs> Probably that. Yeah. Hi, Justin. Good morning. Good morning. This is our less official comeback to podcasting. <laughs> to the thing that we do. Hey. Woo. Happy October. Yes. Hope you enjoyed our special episode that came out last week. Yes. In celebration of Spooky Month. And uh, here we are back with our regularly scheduled uploads. Yes. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are to Hannah procrastinating yet again. Yep. I was told that uh, we were completely ready to go. <laughs> and so I set everything up and she's like, can you give me another 15 minutes? And I was like, well, fine. I was thinking that you were going to let me watch the rest of the Patriots game and that I could finish my research because i had like three stories i was gonna do and then i was like these are all bad this is what happens every single time nothing is good enough for me great yes but that's not what's important what's important is you kind listener kind spookable i hope you're doing well how are you great (laughs) you're not supposed to answer (laughs) well it's not rhetorical could be okay okay well again happy october Hope you're hope you're staying spooky. Hope you're doing your thing. Yeah. And yeah, that's about all I've got to say. Great. Great. Well, this month for our episodes, we decided to do something a little bit more interesting um, in terms of the content that we're bringing in. So in preparation for this month, we have been researching things that specifically would freak us out. Yep. Which is everything for me. But I'm excited to hear what you have. Yeah. Um, so I looked up some things that have been sitting on my list for a while that um, seemed like it would be very timely for this this start of this new episode thing for October. So, okay. Okay. I'm yeah. Look forward we'll, to it. We'll see what you think. All right. All right. Well, I mean, are you ready to just get into it? Yeah. I'm going to eat this brownie and I'm going to listen to your great story. Okay. Sounds good. Let's go. Okay, so for today, I researched something that specifically freaked me out when I heard about it. Mm. So, I'm not going to tell you what the name is yet, um, because I don't want to, I don't want to ruin the story that I'm going to set up here. Okay. Um, all you need to know is that I got my information from Wikipedia, Atlas Obscura. All That's Interesting article by Katie Serena in the podcast, Scared to Death. Oh, great. So, located just a few kilometers south on the municipal road to Schrobenhausen, Bavaria, Germany, laid a beautiful expanse of farmland, which was looked over by a single family and farmstead. Free-range animals and crops aplenty. It certainly was a farming family's dream in the post-war 1920s. It was a place of opportunity and perhaps even enchantment. 
What the heck was that? Sanj. Oh. Things, things are just spilling everywhere. Uh, and I, I can't cut this because I'm already in it. She's in the box. She doesn't fit into that. Lady, get out of there. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. Lady! Great. Okay. Bavaria, 1920s. In Germany, yep. Yes. Uh, post-war 1920s. It was a place of opportunity and perhaps even enchantment. And the Gruber family was more than happy to move into the estate and care for the land. The family consisted of Andreas Gruber, 63, Kazilia Gruber, 72, their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabriel, 35, Victoria's children, Kazilia, 7, and Joseph, 2, and the maid, Maria Baumgartner, who was 44. If you think this sounds like the beginning to a horror story, you're unfortunately all too right. Well, you don't tell me nice stories on this podcast, so great. I was going to try and weave in like a David Gruber Nope. Choke in there, nope. but I figured it wasn't appropriate. So this is the farmstead. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Uh, so actually, it yeah, looks okay. horrifying because yep. it's such an old photograph, but like everything back then that was. means it's an old. Yeah, it's just an old photograph. Yeah. Are you yep. serious? Get off this mess. Oh, my gosh. Get off. Everything is being ruined yep. by these cats. Okay. So let's just begin with some prelude. Um. Actually, no. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the name of the farmstead. Okay. The okay. name of the farmstead is Hinterkaifeck. Great. 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 Okay. I think hinter means behind. It does. Oh, wow. My four years came in handy. So I just wanted to uh, share the name, see if that rang any bells. No. Okay. So strange, strange things began to occur in and around Hinterkaifeck. Six months prior... The family made quit. She had reportedly told the family that she had heard strange noises in the attic and believed the house to be haunted. Andreas Gruber found a strange newspaper on the property um, in March 1922. Oddly enough, the newspaper was from Munich, which was a full day's walk to the south of their form farm. He could not remember buying it himself, and thus Gruber initially believed that the postman had lost the newspaper while delivering their other mail. This was not the case, however, as no one in the vicinity confessed to being subscribed to the paper when asked. Around the same time, some extra keys Andreas had to the house and barn had gone missing, with no one in the family claiming responsibility. Just days earlier, Andreas told neighbors that one evening while out working, he discovered tracks in the fresh snow that led from the forest to a broken door lock in the farm's machine room. While this alone was not largely unsettling, the fact that the tracks did not lead away from the house again bothered him deeply. Oh, I don't like that. Later, during the night, the family believed they heard footsteps in the attic, but Gruber found no one when he searched throughout their home. Although he told several people about these alleged observations, he refused to accept help, and the details went unreported to the police. Because that's what you do. That's what you do in your, your cute little farmstead. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's fine. So... This is where the story takes a very unfortunate oh. and grotesque turn. No. So if you're squeamish, you may want to tune out for a little bit. Can I tune out? No. Tune out. No, Do you, you ever have just... to sit through this. I don't. Uh, okay. Okay. So on the afternoon of March 31st, 1922, a Friday, the new maid, 
Maria Baumgartner, arrived at the farm. Maria's sister had escorted her there and left the farm after a short stay. She was most likely the last person to see the inhabitants alive. It appears that in the late evening, Victoria Gabriel, her seven-year-old daughter, Casilia, and her parents, Andreas and Casilia, were lured to the family barn through the stable where they were murdered one at a time. What? The perpetrator used a mattock similar to a pickaxe belonging to the family farm and killed the family with blows to the head. The perpetrator moved into the living quarters where, with the same murder weapon, he killed Yosef, sleeping in his bassinet, and Baumgartner in her bedchamber. Oh my god. Oh my god, I have full goosebumps. Yeah. Um, I do have the crime scene photos. No. But you don't have to look at them. Um, because they're, you know, obviously quite intense so i'll let anybody else look them up if they choose to (laughs) okay but i won't we won't be posting them okay um the ones from the barn are somewhat interesting though grotesque and very disturbing Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more interesting because there's something weird so should i look at them you don't have to okay four days passed between the murders and the discovery of the bodies on April 1st, coffee sellers Hans Shirovsky and Edward Shirovsky arrived in Hinterkaifeck to place an order. When no one responded to the knocks on the door and the window, they walked around the yard but found no one. They only noticed that the gate to the machine house was open before they decided to leave. Kazilia Gabriel was absent without excuse for the next few days of school, and the family failed to show up for Sunday worship. On Monday, April 3rd, the postman, Joseph Meyer, was delivering the mail at Hinterkaifeck when he noticed that Saturday's mail was still where he had left it and that no one had been in the yard since, presumably because no no tracks in the snow. Oh, sure. So, assembler Albert Hoffner went to Hinterkaifeck on April 4th to repair the engine of the food chopper. He stated that he had not seen any of the family and had heard nothing but the sounds of the farm animals and dogs inside the barn. After waiting for an hour, he decided to start his repair which he completed in roughly four and a half hours. In Groburn, around 2.30 p.m., he met the daughters of the village guide, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, and told them that the repairs in Hinterkaifeck were done. Hofner also told George Greger, the mayor of Wangen, about the ghostly emptiness of Hinterkaifeck. Around 3.30 p.m., Schlittenbauer sent his son Johann, 16, and stepson, Josef, nine to Hinterkaifeck to see if they could make contact with the family. When they reported that they did not see anyone, Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jakob Sigel. Entering the barn, they found the bodies of Andreas Gruber, his wife Kazilia Gruber, his daughter Victoria Gabriel, and his granddaughter Kazilia murdered in the barn. Shortly after, they found the maid, Maria Baumgartner, and the youngest family member, Victoria's son Josef, murdered in the home. So, I'm going to detail a little bit of the investigation post-murder. Okay. Inspector George Reingruber and his colleagues from the Munich Police Department investigated the killings. Initial investigations were hampered by the number of people who had interacted with the crime scene, moved bodies and items around, and even cooked and ate meals in the kitchen. Why? Because the (laughs) police 
were bad at their jobs. Oh my god! <laughs> like, oh, look at all these dead bodies! Wow, I'm so tired. I could go up, for some stew. I'm gonna cook up some ham, quag. You guys want any? We're yeah. just going to put our fingerprints everywhere. Oh, look at this murder weapon. Let's use it to chop the vegetables. Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. Trash. Yeah. The day after the discovery of the bodies, court physician Johann Baptiste Amuller performed the autopsies in the barn. It was established that a mattock was the most likely murder weapon, though the weapon itself was not at the scene. Mm. Evidence showed that the younger Kazilia had been alive for several hours after the assault. She had torn her hair out in tufts while lying in the straw. What? She So, like, she was attacked and then didn't die? Yeah, I got that. So she was laying there the whole time. It's just... For hours. Yeah. There's a rough one. Well, I'm going to move past this. So Right. The skulls of the victims were removed and sent to Munich, where they were further examined. The heads were last kept in a justice building in Augsburg and were later lost, possibly destroyed in the Allied bombings in World War II. Oh, shoot. I forgot about the timeline. On Saturday, April 8th, the victims were buried in the Weidhofen Cemetery. They lost the freaking skulls. You have one job. Preserve. Preserve. Yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't lose people's bodies. Right. It's multiple just not, bodies. It's not good. No. So the police first suspected the motive to be robbery. Okay. Um, and they interrogated traveling craftsmen, vagrants, and several inhabitants from the surrounding villages. Um, when a large amount of money was later found in the house, they ended up abandoning that theory. Mm. It was clear that the perpetrator had remained at the farm for several days. After the attack. Oh, come on. Someone had fed the cattle, eaten the entire supply of bread from the kitchen, and had recently cut meat from the pantry. It was also possible that the perpetrator remained on site for a few days after the discovery. Neighbors also reported smoke coming from the chimney all weekend. Yep. What? I have full-on goosebumps at this point now. So this person who did this to this family stayed in their house what? after doing this to them for at least several days. No. Why? I don't know. How do you not, unless you completely dissociate from that, how do you survive after that? I don't know. Especially because two of the people were in the house still. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, neighbors also reported smoke coming from the chimney all weekend. Mm -hmm. The perpetrator could easily have found the money if robbery had been the intention, but as it was, the money remained completely untouched. Sure. With no clear motive to be uh, gained from the crime scene, the police began to formulate a list of suspects. Mm. Despite repeated arrests, no murder has ever been found, and the files were closed in 1955. What? Nevertheless, the last interrogations took place in 1986 before Conrad Mueller retired. In all, more than 100 suspects have been questioned throughout the years, but none of the questioning ever yielded any conclusive results. That's it. I'm sorry? So, 
I want to talk about some of the inconsistencies with this case and some of the problems that led to them potentially not finding out who did this. What the hell? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, um, also just some of the weird facts they came across in their investigations. Okay. In the inspection record of the court commission, it was noted that the victims were probably drawn to the barn by restlessness in the stable, resulting in noises from the animals. Mm. A later attempt, however, revealed that at least human screams from the barn could not be heard in the living area of the house. Oh. This raises the question of why the four eldest members of the family went to the barn in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to get okay, into okay. this in the next paragraph. Oh, okay. So, the exact sequence of events could not be clarified without a doubt. Hmm. So, there were only... Five pictures taken of the crime scene, two with the bodies in the barn, one of the dead maid in her chamber, one of Joseph's wrecked bassinet in Victoria's bedroom, and an outside view from the yard. Fingerprints were not secured. A reconstruction based on the positioning of the bodies revealed that Victoria Gabriel was likely the first murder victim in the barn. Next was likely the elder Kazilia Gruber, followed by her husband Andreas, and finally Kazilia Gabriel. In the house, the maid must have been killed first, and then Joseph. Um, so, part of this... Do you want to see the barn one? Sure, let me see the barn one. I don't have to show you the other one, but the barn one is kind of weird because there's, like, multiple bodies that are stacked. Yeah. So, as it says, like... These family members were lured like one by one into the barn. And they don't really know how or why. Yeah. Yeah. And and what happened, obviously, when they got to the barn. Right. That's so strange. Yeah. It's almost like a like a Pied Piper of death. Mm hmm. Kind of. Um, so the assumption has often been made that the killer was already on the premises and inside of the roof of the barn before the act, based on the stories Gruber told his neighbors before his death. Mm. Some of the evidence for this theory included shifted roof tiles and hollows in the hay, but these were later interpreted as possible hiding places for the incestuous activities of Gruber with his daughter, Victoria. Oh, very unfortunate. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which may have resulted in the birth of one of her children. So also Ooh. not great. Ooh, okay. We went there tonight. Great. Right. But okay. But at the same time, this also explains why these irregularities would have gone unnoticed oh, by sure. Andreas yeah. when he looked. Yeah. If he had it thoroughly searched the farm several times like he said he did. Sure. He wouldn't have said anything was going on. Mm-hmm. Because maybe those were spots that, you know, he would go to. Yeah. Um, on the night of the crime, three days before the bodies were discovered, the artisan Mikhail Flock happened to pass by Hinterkaifeck. He observed that the oven had been heated by someone. That person had approached him with a lantern and blinded him, whereupon he hastily continued on his way. He also noticed that the smoke from the fireplace had a disgusting smell. This instance was not investigated, and there were no investigations conducted to determine what had been burned that night in the oven. Oh, God. Because as with everything, nobody did a good job, and they didn't really know what 
to preserve and whatnot too. No. Yeah. They didn't leave. Oh God. Yeah. Oh God. I would just hate to be the person where it's like, oh, why don't you go investigate the disgusting mm-hmm. smell? Especially when you're like the little kid was the nine year old. Why? <laughs> why See, did people not it. believe in child traumatization? Not at this time. No, no not until like two thousand. Yeah. Well, on April 1st at 3 a.m., the farmer and butcher, Simon Ricelander, on the way home near Brunnen, saw two unknown figures at the edge of the forest. When the strangers saw him, they turned around so that their faces could not be seen. Later, when he heard of the murders in Hinterkaifeck, he thought it possible that the strangers might be involved. Mm. So these are all just like people's testimonies. Sure, Maybe just like speculation. Maybe this could be it. Yeah. Sure. So, um, the repairman... Um, Albert Hofner was at Hinterkaifeck for several hours of repair work after the crime, yeah. but was only questioned in 1925 as the police had failed to conduct an interrogation immediately after the crime. Another misstep. Fine. His statement suggests that the perpetrator was back in the yard during the time for, of the repair. The doors to the house had been locked and he had not met anyone, but he did hear the dogs barking inside. At the end of his repair, a dog was tied up outside instead, and the barn door was open. What? When the men discovered the bodies later that day, the dog was inside the barn, and the barn door had been closed again. No. Okay, so where did this person go? Like, how many people have to come to this house before he's like, "Mm, you know, maybe this isn't safe for me. Maybe I gotta go. I don't know. Honestly, like, yeah, this is crazy. Yes, and it freaks me out so bad Ugh. that this person could just insert themselves into someone's living quarters, uh-huh. and one by one, take them out, take out an entire family, the entire family, and then live in their house for a few days afterward before finally leaving, and don't get caught. Right. Okay, so I have some suspects for you now. Ooh, okay. The first one, Carl Gabriel, the husband of Victoria Gabriel, mm. named Carl, had reportedly been killed in Arras, France, by a shell attack in December 1914 during the First World War. Okay. However, his body had never been recovered. I mean, granted, it was a shell attack, so it could have uh, very well been destroyed. Sure. Um, but, of course, you know, never recovered. After the murders, people people began to speculate if he had indeed died in the war or not. Victoria Gabriel had given birth to Joseph illegitimately in her husband's absence. Two-year-old Joseph was rumored to be the son of Victoria and her father, Andreas, who had an incestuous relationship that was documented in court and known in the village. So crappy. Some theorized that Carl Gabriel killed the family to seek revenge. Although soldiers from his regiment testified to his death, and the police were inclined to believe them, this theory gained new nourishment over the years after people repeatedly reported that they had met Gabriel or could confirm that he had exchanged his identity with that of a fallen comrade. After the end of the Second World War, war, captive, war captives from the Chauvinhausen region who were released prematurely from Soviet captivity claimed that they had been sent home by a German-speaking Soviet officer who claimed to be the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. What? Yeah. Some of these men later revised their statements, however, which diminishes their credibility. Hmm. Many theorized that this Soviet might be Carl Gabriel, 
because those that claimed to have seen the man after his reported death testified that Gabriel had wanted to go to Russia. Whether Carl Gabriel lived through World War I can never be known for certain, and even if it could, there's no proving that he was a Hindukaisen killer. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how I feel about that one, because it's mm-hmm. like, if he's if, at the very first, why would people have a reason to lie about him being killed? Yeah. Just so he could do something, you know, six to eight years later. Yeah. It, it, it just feels why, like, why wouldn't you go back to your wife and children? Yeah, exactly. So that one feels a little far-fetched to me. Sure. I guess. And uh, I'm... I feel like I'm romanticizing this. This is not a good appropriate word, but like if he were to come back, why not just kill the dad? Right. Why the entire family? Yeah. Why, why a stranger? Why the maid? Yeah, exactly. Like kill the, the shitty dad. Well, yeah. Plus your, your legitimate. Yes. Like, yeah, there's so much wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. And what was he doing during that time? What was he doing between those six to eight years? Exactly. Why didn't he come back right away? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Right. I'm not going to throw it off the table, but I'm going to scoot it to the edge. Fair enough. Um, next up, we have Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Shortly after the death of his first wife in 1918, Lorenz Schlittenbauer was believed to have a relationship with Victoria Gabriel and Father Joseph. So, this is another oh, theory. Oh, okay, okay. That um, Andreas was confirmed by the village to have been involved in relationships with his children Mm. but this could have been a legitimate child from a different person okay instead of from her father sure um the initials ls appear on joseph's birth certificate though these could be the initials of an attending doctor um so for lawrence schlittenbauer okay um schlittenbauer came under suspicion by locals early in the investigation because of his several suspicious actions immediately after the discovery of the bodies. When Schlittenbauer and his friends came to investigate, they had to break a gate to enter the barn because all of the doors were locked. However, immediately after finding the four bodies in the barn, he apparently unlocked the front door with a key and suspiciously entered the house alone. What? A key to the house had gone missing several days before the murders, though it is also possible that Schlittenbauer, as a neighbor or as Victoria's potential lover, might have been given a key. Hmm. When asked by his companions why he had gone into the house alone, when it was unclear if the murder might still be there, he allegedly stated that he went to look for his son, Joseph. Regardless of any of the above rumors, it is known that Schlittenbauer had disturbed the bodies at the scene, thus potentially compromising the investigation. Wow. Thanks. What a cool guy. Thanks, Schlitty. Yep. Um, For many years after, local suspicion remained on Schlittenbauer because of his strange comments, which were seen as indicating knowledge of details that only the killer would know. Oh. According to reports in the files for the case, local teacher Hans Blagger discovered Schlittenbauer visiting the remains of the demolished Hinterkaifeck in 1925. Upon being asked why he was there... He stated that the perpetrator's attempt to bury the family's remains in the barn had been hindered by the frozen ground. This was seen as evidence that Schlittenbauer had intimate knowledge of the conditions of the ground at the time of the murders. Although being a neighbor and familiar with the local land, he may have been making an educated guess. Yeah. 
Another speculation was that Schlittenbauer murdered the family after Victoria demanded financial support for young Joseph. Before his death in 1941, Schlittenbauer conducted and won several civil claims for slander against persons who described him as the murderer of Hinterkaifer. So it seems to be that the people of the village don't agree with him being the murderer either. Okay. But that's hard to say. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, that's just one. I don't know. Like, that's the hard thing about this is you just can't know. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And I think the thing that really had, okay, I'm going to do my best to explain this. The thing that gets me is that let's say that, I'm sorry, what was his name? Lorenz. Lorenz. Mm -hmm. Let's say Lorenz was completely innocent, but he did have a relationship with Victoria. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's just say that. If you this is me. If someone says, Hannah, you're lying or Hannah, you're doing this or this. I, I start to act weird. Yeah. And I do my best to like, to prove that I'm innocent or yeah. prove that I'm not lying. And then because of that, like I get weird. Right. And so, then you become more suspicious. Exactly. So if people are like, Oh, well we know this information about you, Lorenz. And then like, Oh, you're the murderer. You are. Tell me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I could see his actions looking odd and looking strange. Definitely. If, even if he is innocent. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Next up, we have the Gump Brothers. Heretofore unmentioned. So, on April 9th, 1922, Lead Reingruber wanted to question. Adolf Gump in connection with the murders as it had been rumored he was in a relationship with Victoria. Oh my lord. All right. I'm kind of getting the feeling that a lot of these people were like, oh yeah, I'm with Victoria. Mm. She's hot. You know? Sounds like a babe. Yeah. Well, legitimately, like, this is including her father. This is the third, third and fourth person now who's like, yeah, I was maybe with Victoria. Sure. Like, come on at a certain point like aren't you just like smearing her a little bit yeah for sure especially if it's just rumors for sure yeah yeah it feels very wrong because i also i'm hoping that this isn't the case but i'm wondering if like if some people justified her death because of that yeah you know like oh well if she was sleeping around right and if if she was with all these men, then it makes sense. Right. Which it doesn't. Well, I mean, my next sentence that I wrote down, however, no evidence was ever found to prove this claim. Wow. It, yeah. Great. People are just using this and mm-hmm. it's becoming inappropriate. So with three others, Adolf Gump had participated in the murder of nine peasants in Silesia. Um, so that's fun. Oh, okay. This is big information. Yeah. Ryan Gruber could not rule out Adolf Gump's potential involvement in the murders at Hinterkaifeck. Um, in 1951, prosecutor Andreas Pop investigated Adolf's brother, Anton Gump, in relation to the murders at Hinterkaifeck. The sister of the Gumps, Crescentia Meyer, claimed on her deathbed that her brothers Adolf and Anton had committed the murders. As a result, Anton Gump was remained remanded to police custody but Adolf had already died in 1944. Mm -hmm. After a short time, however, Anton was dismissed again 
1954, the case against him was finally discontinued because he could not be proven to have participated in the crime. Mm. So, like, this dude killed people, but, like, oh. Did he kill these people? Right. Interesting. Yep. Because, like, how much do you take a deathbed testimony? Right. To, uh, like. Because, truly, a a deathbed testimony could be literally anything. Yep. So. Hmm. Next up, I have Carl S. and Andreas S. In 1971, a woman named Therese T. wrote a letter citing an event in her youth. At the age of 12, she witnessed her mother receiving a visit from the mother of the brothers Carl and Andreas S. The woman claimed that her sons from Saddleburg were the two murderers of Hinterkaifeck. The mother said Andreas regretted that he lost his penknife in the course of the conversation. In fact, when the farm was demolished in 1923, a pocket knife was found that could not be clearly assigned to anyone. However, the knife could easily have belonged to one of the murder victims. This track was followed without result. Krizenz Riker, the former maid of Hinterkaifeck, was certain she had already seen the penknife in the yard during her service there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So, this one is significantly less plausible than the other ones, Yeah. I think. Um, because again, like it could literally have been anybody's. Exactly. And it sounds like they had maybe some, you know, some farmhands, some help, right. neighbors. I mean, really, anybody could have dropped that. And if that's the only thing you're going off An of. An investigator could have dropped that. Exactly. Yeah, because it was only found once it was demolished. Sure. Uh, next up, we have Peter Weber. Peter Weber was named a suspect by Joseph Betts. The two worked together in the winter of 1919 and 1920 as laborers, and they shared a chamber. According to Betts, Weber spoke in the time of a remote farm, Hinterkaifeck. Weber knew that only one old couple lived there with their daughter and her two children. It is likely he knew about the incest between Gruber and his daughter. Betts testified in a hearing that Weber had suggested killing the old man to get the family's money. When Betts did not respond to the offer, Weber stopped talking about it. Interesting. So, because this dude brought this thing up one time before, mm. all of a sudden, he's a murder suspect. Sure. Eh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A little thin, but it's fine. Yeah. It makes me very uncomfortable to know that this was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's fine. And it's still unsolved. Yep. Great. And finally, we come to the Bickler brothers and George Siegel. The former maid... Krasens Riger worked from November 1920 to about September 1921 on Hinterkaifeck. She suspected the brothers Anton and Carl Bickler to have committed the murders. Anton Bickler had helped with the potato harvest on Hinterkaifeck and therefore knew the premises. Riger said Bickler talked to her often about the Gruber and Gabriel family. Anton reportedly suggested that the family ought to be dead. The maid also emphasized in her interrogation that the farm dog who barked at everyone never barked at Anton. In addition, she reported speaking with a stranger through her window at night. The maid believed that it was Carl Bickler, the brother of Anton. She thought that Anton and Carl Bickler could have committed the murder together with George Siegel, who had worked at Hinterkaifeck and knew of the family fortune. Supposedly, Siegel had broken into the home in November 1920 and had stolen a number of items, though he denied it. 
He did state that he had carved the handle of a murder weapon while he was working at Hinterkaifeck and knew that the tool would have been kept in the barn passage. Hmm. So this is coming from the former maid. Okay. But still. Still. But nobody took the money. That's what's getting me. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, if you wanted to do this for money, it seemed like the money was easily, easily. Oh my gosh. It was left completely alone. Yeah. So why just, why just kill? Psychopathy. I guess. Maybe. Yeah. That's the only real thing I can think of. Gosh. Because like they don't, they didn't even do it for the fame. Yeah. Because like, they didn't. You know, they didn't want to get caught. Well, no. they didn't get caught. Maybe they did want it. Yeah. That's why they stayed there. But who knows? Hmm. Yeah, dude. Well, finally, I'm moving on to um, the case as it stands. Okay. So a little bit of legacy here about it. The strange and unclear circumstances of the case have made the case legendary as one of the most n- notorious unsolved murder cases in German history and have also sparked worldwide interest that continues until today resulting in many fictional and non-fictional works based on the case, including books, films, theater plays, and other forms of art. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's really sad. My intonation there was like, oh, wow. No, it, like, it's not good. I'm really sorry. Yeah. And pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, in 2007, the students of the Polizei Fakonschule... <laughs> Police Academy uh-huh. in Furstenfeldbruck examined the case using modern criminal investigation techniques. Mm. They concluded that it is impossible to definitely, definitively solve the crime after so much time has passed. Yeah. The primitive investigation techniques available at the time of the murders yielded little evidence. And in the decades since the murders, evidence has been lost and some suspects have since died. Despite these setbacks, the students did establish a prime suspect, but did not name the suspect out of respect for still living relatives. Oh, okay. Um, Hinterkaifeck is a mystery thriller from 2009, made by director Esther Gronenborn and producer Monica Rabel, starring Benno Furman and Alexandra Maria Lara. So they made a movie about it. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. In 2013, American musical project Giles Corey released an extended play titled Hinterkaifeck with a photo of the house's cover artwork and songs containing lyrics based around the Gruber family. Hmm. Um, Tanovd is a novel by German author Andrea Maria Schenkel, first published in Germany in January 2006. It depicts the investigation of a family murder heavily inspired by the Hinterkaifeck case, but set in the 1950s. It was adapted into a film starring Julia Gensch in 2009. Hinterkaifeck by Swedish death metal band Volchiuron from their 2016 album Cleansed by Carnage is written from the perspective of Carl Gabriel returning from the First World War to exact revenge for his wife's incestuous relationship with Andreas Gruber. Not her fault. Nope. But all right. Yep. Great. Fine. Okay. In 2017, the last chapter of The Man from the Train by Bill James and his daughter Rachel McCarthy James briefly discusses the murders at Hinterkaifeck. 
The authors explain the possibility that the German crimes might have been committed by Paul Mueller, the titular serial killer the authors believe killed several families in the United States under similar circumstances between 1989 and 1912. The murders attributed to Mueller, including the Velisca Axe murders, were apparently random nighttime home invasions in or near small railroad towns that left entire families bludgeoned to death with the blunt end of an axe oh. and were probably motivated by a sadistic and necrophilic attraction, attraction to prepubescent girls. Ooh. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, so the authors rate the chances of Mueller as the Hinterkaifeck killer as more or less a toss-up. <laughs> But conclude that there's no real reason to believe that it's not him. Sure. So it kind of just sounds like publicity. I mean, was he ever in Germany? I I don't know. Fine. I mean, there's nothing proving that. So yeah. Um. Today, the farmhouse has long been demolished, and a memorial lies on the property in remembrance of the slain family. Mm. The perpetrator of these attacks is still completely unknown. Oh my god. Oh, this is a beautiful memorial. Yeah. Oh. Oh, gosh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I don't like un- unsolved murders. Yeah. This is just one of the worst ones I've ever come across. Great. So there you go. Thanks for sharing it. Uh-huh. <sighs> well... I told myself that during the month of October, I will be strong. This is the only month that I allow myself to actively be scared. Fine. Same. So you're scared all the time. You watch horror things for fun. Uh-uh. Bro. Fine. Great. That was a very good story, though. Thank you. It's very sad. It is very sad. Very mysterious and creepy. Yeah. To think that there was a person potentially living in their house before this happened they didn't know about it and then continued to live there after he killed them yep so that's fun makes me very uncomfortable yeah but that's all i got today wow okay well thanks justin Uh oh thanks for coming along Please help me. I'm bleeding so much. She pleaded with a 911 dispatcher. He cut my throat. I've got pressure on it, but it's spraying blood all over. Welcome to my story, Justin. Is this an ad? Yes, this is an (laughs) ad for fake blood spray. Ding, ding. Nice. Yep. That's awful. I don't know how to... Okay. This is very inappropriate. I didn't know how to say that without, you know, trying to get through it sure. because I don't want to imagine anybody yeah, ever having to yeah, say this. Definitely. And um yeah, I'm just not feeling it. Fair. Uh-huh. So That's t- really the worst uh-huh. thing. Yeah. So that's the mood. That's the mood that I'm going to set for this lovely oh. this lovely story. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, so <laughs> Uh, rewind. Great. Hi, welcome to Hannah's story. The time where Hannah tells you a story. Wow. Wow, that's really new and interesting. Yeah, I thought so. Great. <laughs> okay, 
so as we mentioned, um, Justin is just very, very strong. Justin is very great. And wow, thanks. I am a fragile, just butterfly. Yes, or slash marshmallow. You know, like mm. I, you leave me out too long, and I become stale. You put me in the microwave and i melt it's still I, butterfly though still, <laughs> right what i'm trying yeah a butterfly is well i'm a butterfly marshmallow Fine. what i'm trying to say is is that i am just a anxious mm. ball mm-hmm. of play-doh Fine. that can fall apart at any time okay so when I was thinking about things that make me uncomfortable and scare me that I could share for the month of October, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, <laughs> let's look at my damn sure, list. Yeah, let's pick one. I got a lot of them. Like, Great. Justin, you've got like three. No, I'm not scared of anything. Exactly. Exactly. Hannah, <laughs> I'm scared of quite a few things. Really? This is news. This is not news, Justin. Mm. You know. It's fun, though. It is fun. <laughs> fun so so i actually have a sort of similar story to you Mm. but a you've already heard this story many times really yes b this story has a happy ending oh oh good thing you went last then exactly (laughs) great so today justin yeah i am spoilers everybody (sighs) i am going to be telling the story the i survive story (gasps) of jennifer mori I think I think you've heard this because you listened to like eighty four podcasts. Oh, okay. 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 Don't worry, I won't be saying the entire story in ASMR. I can do that though. Okay, cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, okay. Let's do it. This, Fasten your seatbelts. Great. And get ready to listen to a almost word-for-word article of the Houston Press written on December 31st, 1998 by Steve McVicker. Well, if it is honestly the best way to encapsulate the information, Mm -hmm. this is the best way you can do it. Exactly. You have to do it justice, and I found that out in a couple of other stories. Yes, 100%. And here's my thing. I, I love writing. I love being creative. It's wonderful. And I'm lazy as hell. And it's also really nice to just read a story from someone else who has taken so much time to right. beautifully write that story. Yeah. That I feel like hopefully as long as I credit them, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. So I'm I'm interested. Do you know do you know the story just by her name? No. Okay, you're gonna know it pretty quickly. I think I have an idea, but I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Well, you ready? Yes. Okay. Oh, I had the date up. Um, no. <laughs> okay. This never happened. <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, getting back to my notes. Fine. On a Friday night in late December 1998, 25-year-old Jennifer Mori, who was a lawyer, had been paying a Friday night visit to one of her favorite local... Um, establishments the ale house with some of her friends around midnight one of her friends drove her home to the bayou park apartments on memorial drive in downtown houston 
The complex boasted 24-hour protection provided by an on-premise Pinkerton security guard. Yep. And Maury, who had lived alone, had specifically chosen Bayou Park for that reason. Which means that we already know <laughs> it's not as safe as she thinks. Uh, she said she'd heard of Pinkerton. The name seemed old and strong, like Wells Fargo, and made her feel safe. <laughs> like Wells Fargo or Pepperidge Farm. <laughs> Okay, I mean, sure, I guess. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that should be Wells Fargo's new new slogan. It makes you feel safe. Yeah, <laughs> because it's old and strong. Ah, uh, Like bull. <laughs> strong like bull. Oh, boof. Okay, goodbye. Okay, so Maury went straight to bed, mm-hmm. but around 4 a.m., she awoke with someone straddling her body and pressing something hard against her neck. Mm, no. Yeah. No. So... First of all, real quick, I'm sorry. Cue in the part that absolutely terrifies me. Uh-huh. I do not like being home alone. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm fine with it. During the day, great. I love it. Goodbye, Justin. You're wonderful, but I love it. I've been home alone for seven years now. Great. But at night, you know, it just becomes a little much. And especially with the cats running around, like, they make noises. I feel that. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, when you were off on your on-sites last year for weeks at a time a week at a time yeah i was like all right (laughs) i live in an apartment building great well i even felt that way like when you would go and play with city bands oh sure yeah and i'd be by myself i felt that too yeah and you didn't have sage then no i didn't no it's just me and like i want to believe spoilers well not spoilers um we live on the third floor in a corner apartment Mm -hmm. and i tell myself that that's safe because, like, if you want to get into our apartment, you have to scale up three stories. But still, it makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. And when I was thinking about a story to tell, this is just the first one I could think of. of Like, someone waking me up yeah. that I don't know, pressing a knife to my neck yep. with or without you there is terrifying either way either way it is my worst nightmare yep yep so here's the story vomit great okay so sorry back to jennifer uh desperately attempting to shake off her dream state she realized that she was about to be raped she tried to push the intruder off but as her hands followed his arms towards her head she realized that he was holding a knife to her neck still she fought during the, the struggle, the attacker slashed her, sorry, slashed her throat, starting at her right ear and then moving <sighs> several inches down her neck, uh, leaving her with a wound that looked like a second mouth. No. Blood poured over Maury, over her bed, and all over the stranger. No. Grabbing no. Maury by her blonde hair, the attacker pulled her off the bed, threw her into the bathroom, and shut the door. He said that if she came out, he'd kill her. <sighs> Maury, a friend he'd afraid he'd come for her again, placed her back against the door, slid down to the floor, with and with all of her remaining strength, pressed her feet against the bathtub in any attempt to keep the door shut. Yeah. Mind you, she's bleeding out. Oh. And honestly, I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine probably the worst place to bleed out is from your neck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, there's that. Your armpit and your thigh probably uh-huh. are the worst. Uh-huh. Probably your neck. Oh, just disgusting. 
disgusting. Yeah. And oh my god, I'm just I in the best way possible. I'm happy that she was able while well, he threw her into the bathroom and mm-hmm. she was able to get some isolated moments. Yeah. Because if she didn't, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. Oh my How God. do you even clear yourself after that? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Ugh. Surrounded by her own blood, she was struck by the silence. Moments earlier, the apartment had only been filled with noise. Sounds from the struggle, her cries for help. Now the only thing she heard was the sound of a zipper. The man was zipping up his pants, and she hoped that that meant that he was leaving. After a few more moments that seemed like hours, she mustered up the courage to leave the bathroom, afraid that she'd bleed to death otherwise. Yeah. But her hands, slick with her own blood, couldn't grip the doorknob. Worse, she'd pressed so hard against the bathroom door that it was now jammed. Oh, no. Just freaking crazy. Yeah. How do you have that much strength? I don't. I mean, really, you are in a life or death situation. And I feel like your body just takes over. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) In that moment, Maury laughed. An exercise of the darkest possible humor seems like my kind of gal. Yeah. She had fought off a would-be murderer, but now she was going to bleed to death in her bathroom because she couldn't open the door that didn't even have a lock. Oh, come on. Yep. But don't worry, everybody. Finally, she pulled the door open, and in the hallway, she she fumbled for the lights, but when she flipped the switch, there was only darkness. Mm. She stumbled in search of the phone, but like the lights, it was dead. Of course. Luckily, she found her cell phone and uh. dialed 911. Oh. That night, Mr. Richard Everett was working his first shift ever no. as an emergency <laughs> dispatcher. No! <laughs> Richard. Yup. <laughs> Richard. So... Okay, this is when she says, please help me. I'm bleeding so much. He cut my throat. I've got pressure on it, but it's spraying blood all over. You're doing fine, Richard told Maury. Are you cut anywhere else? All I know is my neck, she sobbed. Everett told her to check the rest of her body and instructed her to place a clean towel against her neck and hold pressure tightly. For what seemed like forever, he tried to keep her calm and tried to keep her on the line. After about 10 minutes, she heard a knock on the door. That's interesting. Who would be knocking on her door? How could someone hear her? Yeah. She told the dispatcher this. She screamed, who is it? What's your name? A man replied, Brian Gibson. Everett, who knew that the dispatchers were not there yet, advised her Uh, not to open the door. uh, Open the door. It's security, the man yelled. She told the dispatcher that. It's security, Everett asked, obviously alarmed by the development. Again, neither the police nor the paramedics had contacted the building's security guard, mm. therefore leaving various questions. Yep. Especially in this building, security guards usually stayed at the front of the building and did not patrol the hallways. Right. The dispatcher, again, warned her not to open the door. Oh, my gosh. When Houston police officers arrived a few minutes later... Uh, at Bayou Park Apartments in the early mornings of... Oh, I'm sorry. I lied. I thought this was in December. It was April 15th, 1995. Oh, still cold. Yep. They were greeted by a Pinkerton security guard named Brian Wayne Gibson. Mm -hmm. Gibson was an absolute mess. 
The 26-year-old was bleeding from his right hand, had blood in his face, and all over his Pinkerton-issued shirt. He told the police that he, too, had been attacked and that an intruder had jumped to the ground from Maury's second-floor balcony, wrestled with him, and then fleed across a nearby field and into the darkness. Mm. But as one of the officers shined his flashlight across the field, the dew-covered grass showed no footprints, no blood marks, and no tracks. Yeah. And in Maury's apartment, police found a knife, male underwear covered in Maury's blood, and a Pinkerton security cap. Nuh-uh. Are you serious? How dumb can you be? He probably came back because he realized he didn't have it. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he probably would have freaking finished <gasps> the job. He would have killed her if, he, if she would have let him in. <sighs> okay. When the officers searched, searched Gibson, they found that, ding, ding, he was missing his Pinkerton security cap and his underwear. How are you going to explain you not wearing your underwear, sir? You're a security guard. Don't just go commando. Furthermore, Justin? No. He'd recently shaved his pubic hair. Apparently, in an attempt not to leave trace evidence at the scene of the crime, instead of coming to Maury's door to help her, as we just said, Gibson had most likely returned to retrieve his possessions or perhaps finish off his victim. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Um... Eventually, Gibson was convicted of attempted murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. But in Maury's opinion, Pinkerton security should have never placed him in such a sensitive position. Mm -hmm. In 1992, Gilbert had started at Pinkerton, earning $5.25 an hour, $1 above minimum wage, making the security job pretty, I don't want to say like a pretty good deal but mm-hmm. it i mean if it's more than what the minimum yeah, wage was like pretty good it's a good deal yeah. it's a good job yeah mm-hmm. during his three years in the job he'd been re- he had been removed from two different assignments after getting crosswise with clients mm. pinkerton had officials had reassigned gibson yet again after another client complaint and at a construction site the guard had allegedly used one of the client's vehicles without permission a violation um, a violation that should have given Gibson an auto theft account or charge, but yeah. it was taken off. Like they didn't. They just they didn't swept care. it. Exactly. Oh my gosh, this dude at this point has a background uh-huh. now, like exactly. with this company. Exactly. But Pinkerton didn't terminate him or file charges. Oh my gosh. Instead, they reassigned him to the graveyard shift at Bayou Park, a complex where many young women lived alone. Because they knew they had security guards there. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. So this is a quote from Jennifer. So, quote, um, I think he was a sexual sexual criminal who was put into a situation like a kid in a candy shop. And he used his opportunity to pick his favorite flavor. Unbelievable. After the attack, Maury, who survived, Mm -hmm. uh, filed a lawsuit against Pinkerton security in a state district court. While researching the shoot, the suit, she and her attorney learned that, learned that Brian Gibson was far from the first Pinkerton security guard to go bad. You've got to be kidding me. Texas state records show that between 1991 and 1995, approximately 130 Pinkerton <gasps> guards were convicted convicted of felonies. What? 130 of them in a four-year span. In 1992, a 15-year-old El Paso girl was returning home from after a movie. As she walked along the sidewalk, she was cut off a car 
driven by a man in a Pinkerton security uniform. Witnesses saw Kenneth Wayne Scott flash a, a security badge at the girl, handcuff her, and throw her into his vehicle. He drove to the desert northeast of El Paso, where he raped her before shooting her in the back of the head at point-blank range. Miraculously, the teenager freaking survived. How? Partially nude, she crawled her way back to the highway where she was rescued. Holy crap. Scott was quickly arrested and convicted of an attempted capital murder, and he is currently serving a life sentence. Um, a routine check should have alerted Pinkerton that Scott wasn't guard material. A quote, at the mm. time, Scott was on parole on yeah. a federal firearms charges. He had a number of prior convictions out of Florida and another state that were easily accessible had anyone bothered to look. And well, that was from um, El Paso County Prosecutor Robin Bramlett. Knowing they're coming from Florida, I mean, these people, you should just <laughs> just dump them. You just know? don't hire them. No. Just don't. You're like, oh, okay, sorry. You, you lived in Florida for two months? No, goodbye. Yeah. Okay, we got more. Oh, my gosh. On January 3rd, 1993, Troy H. Dennis and several other men had been drinking beer. Fine. When the beer was gone, they decided to rob a nearby convenience store. During the holdup, the 59-year-old clerk, Lenora Tetsmar, and a customer, 20-year-old Todd Thompson, were shot to death. Seriously? Baytown police followed a trail of beer cans to the house where 20-year-old Jones and his buddies had been hiding. They're not even... They're not even trying. No! You can't just drink a beer, throw it on the ground. No. Jones, who was one of the shooters, was sentenced to life in prison... And records show that less than a year before the murders, he'd been employed by Pinkerton Security. Similarly, in 1995, 22-year-old Christopher L. Jones received a 30-year sentence for murder. State records show that at the time of the shooting, uh, Jones was employed as a guard by Pinkerton Security in Dallas. On. Obviously, their vetting process is not working. It's non-existent. Yeah. Ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. To put this in perspective, um, okay. So while those while those are among the, the worst cases, and obviously, you know, those are the, the big ones. Yeah. So at the time, Pinkerton Security Guard had four thousand or so licensed guards who were not felons. Okay. But as um as the company critics like to point out, Pinkerton's Texas contingent, so their their size. Yeah, like that branch. Yes is roughly the size of the Houston Police Department. And having 130 former Houston police officers charged and convicted of felonies over a four-year period would boggle even the harshest critics of any city laws enforcement. Yeah. What are you doing? Honestly, how are you so bad? 130 of anything bad is 130 too many. Yeah. But, like, that's a lot of anything that's bad. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Like, honestly. Yeah. Like, it's... if you have 130 worldwide, like, anything. Yeah. It's too much. It's too much. Especially when they are supposed to be security guards who are keeping people safe and are supposed to go through a pretty big security check and a background check. Yeah. You would just think so. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, 
that is the story of why Hannah always locks her doors and the amazing survival story of Jennifer Mori. Don't live in Texas, everybody. Also, if you're interested whatsoever, there is a very, very fascinating I Survived, which is where I got the story from Mm -hmm. and the the Houston article um, featuring Jennifer, who, in my opinion, looks a lot like Jillian Anderson. Yes, almost exactly. It's ridiculous. Yeah. No shape, everything. Um, So you can find that if you have a lifetime subscription or if you want to stream it, go ahead and do that. It is season one, episode 11. Great. So, yeah. That's crazy. I can't believe it was that responders first day first and day he talked her through that and he had enough like wherewithal to realize that the cops and the paramedics weren't there yet mm-hmm. and he was like don't open the door yeah those are your real security guards right there yeah absolutely mind-blowing oh that's so awful yeah so i'm kinda... so glad that it ended up okay i know but i just i just wish this stuff didn't happen at all i know like Like, this is just so awful just do other things do other things besides hiding in people's homesteads and killing them one by one yeah and breaking into people's apartments yeah raping them and trying to kill them wasn't Oh man, it might have been a different one that I'm mixing this up with, okay. but wasn't he like in her closet or something like that? I don't know. Or I didn't get a that different story. I didn't get that information, but maybe, maybe. I don't know if it was that. I think it was a different story, but okay. like just. Oh. But the thing is, is that there are so many of these awful stories. Like I remember one that I heard on Drink, and they're like one of the residents of the apartment. She she had one of those doors, like kind of how we do. Like you, the first door is open mm-hmm. to public, and then you have to either buzz in or use your apartment key. Yeah. And she had someone follow her in, and as she was going up the stairs, she didn't hear the door close. Yeah. And it, she didn't hear it click, and she yes. was like, "Oh my god, there's someone behind me." Yeah. yeah. And then she just like ran to her apartment yeah. and closed her door, and I think she like saw their footprint or she saw their like the the shadow of their body outside, outside of her door, door and she didn't look through the oh, this is a oh this is a good life tip don't look through the peephole mm-hmm. because people could have a gun and they could shoot you through the peephole yeah and so she didn't do that <laughs> what's a peephole for then i don't know I mean, how many times have you seen that in movies, though? Like, people yeah, put a gun up, and, like, that's a that's a hole through your door. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> this is awful. What a horrible episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, I don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Just be safe. Be smart. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. It's Lock fine. your doors. Fine. That's all I gotta tell you right now. That's the only thing I can tell you that I have one hundred percent certainty. Lock your doors. Yes. Yep. And if you're living in an apartment building, don't let in anybody else. No. That you don't know. Don't let in children. Don't open the doors with rocks or prop them open. No. Just don't. Like if there's someone coming in behind you, don't hold the door for them. Uh huh. Because you don't know why they're coming in. Exactly. You know what? Let's expand this. If you live in a residence hall, aka dorm room, mm. 
don't do that. That pissed me off in college. I was like, if you don't, I mean, I, I took it, I took advantage of it. Absolutely. Right. But like, I'm serious though. When we were living in North Scott, Mm -hmm. I didn't want people coming into that building that were not supposed to be there because people can just go and you just wander the halls Mm -hmm. where other people, like so many students did not lock their dorm rooms. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Lock your doors. Great. Don't talk to strangers. Fine. Don't let them into your apartments. Love it. Or a dorm room. Great. Great. Sage, are you comfy, baby? Are you comfy? Well, on that note, let's move into recommendation station. Oh, man. Okay. Do you have one? No. Really? Bobby, I forgot we did this. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. my suggestion is going to be, um, I know not everybody has Netflix. Not everybody has Hulu. So I want to do one for each. Ooh. So on Netflix, I just started watching the show Evil, which uh, started out as a CBS show. And it stars Mike Coulter from Luke Cage. Nice, nice. Very good. Um, It's about like a skepticist who's like a psychologist and then um, a guy who's trained to become a priest. And they go investigate like the backlog of the Catholic Church's investigation reports oh so they try to do like demonic possessions or like see if it's real or not or like if there's a way to debunk it it's really interesting oh my goodness okay um and then to the hulu side also on youtube by the way um buzzfeed unsolved supernatural (laughs) uh with shane and um ryan okay okay so good (laughs) it's so funny and they go to all these haunted places and they investigate to see if they can get any ghosts interacting with them. Yeah. Um, they also talk about like history of places. It's just, it's really interesting and uh, gives another unique insight into that world. Yeah. And I really like their dynamic. I yeah. think the two of them are very fun together mm-hmm. and it's good. Yeah. Those are good recommendations. Thanks. Wow. Just for spooky month. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, okay, so I have two things as well now Great. that I'm thinking about it. Fine. Okay, the first one, um, obviously, it is it's still COVID. Please be safe. Please social distance. Please just do do what you gotta do to stay safe and keep other people safe. Prioritize other people's lives too. Love it. With that being said, Justin and I were searching for a little bit of normal, mm-hmm. and we. Um, movie theaters have opened up back in Wisconsin mm. around the Madison area. Yeah. And Justin and I, a couple weeks ago, just really needed to go do something. Mm-hmm. And Shrek was playing, yeah, like the is. original Shrek. And it was just, honestly, if you can watch the original Shrek in a movie theater with the love of your life, it's just a great time. That is not my recommendation, however. Great. I highly recommend, cannot recommend enough, the movie Tenet. Mm-hmm. It is just brilliant. Um, that was really good. It was just one of the best movie experiences that I have ever had. And I just believe that it is meant mm. to be seen in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a great surround system, do yeah. it. Live it up. Love it. Yeah. Just absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Nice. Yeah. Great. And one more quick thing. Uh, for me, for me, Hannah... 
eat some Reese's pumpkins. Fine. Okay. Oh my god. Do it. Okay. All right, that's me. All right. <laughs> well, stay spooky. Stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.